So Noah and I thought maybe we'd play a little tonight and see what happens. And as we pondered a little what to talk about, one of the things that came to mind was we might talk a little bit just about Buddhism coming to the West, because here we are. This is (laughs) Buddhism coming to the West. And so over dinner, we thought we'd talk about that for a little bit and then maybe open for questions. Some of you may have practice questions. Some of you who've come particularly to hear Noah may want some particularly pearly piece of wisdom. Um, And um, we can kind of go from there. So it's pretty freeform tonight. We'll see what happens. I'm not quite sure why we're recording it, but you never can tell. Can we lead off? Sure. I mean, uh, again, I just want to say, or, or for the first time, say that it's nice to be here. And, uh, thank you for for having me. I asked Mary to maybe talk a little bit about the history of of Vipassana Santa Cruz, and, um, and partially because. It's, uh, I've been gone from Santa Cruz for about 10 years, and when I come here, when I come home uh, and visit my family, and it's very sort of nostalgic for me on a, a lot of different levels. Um, there's a lot of uh, trauma that has happened <laughs> uh, in my life in this town, uh, and a lot of healing, and a lot of my kind of core spiritual practice uh, took place in this town and in this group. Uh, the, my early days of, of Buddhist practice. So, uh, and I love the fact, and, and Mary will tell us about it, that uh, that in, in some ways, you know, this group was uh, kind of some of the roots of this Buddhist meditation group were with my father's meditation mm-hmm. group mm-hmm. Uh, thirty years ago, or however, seventy-nine. Yeah. Yeah. Forty years ago, so we were we were de- we were actually debating over dinner exactly how long Buddhism has been in this country. That's of course up for grabs, but um, I was thinking that when I went off to college, it was the time of the beatniks. So some of you, I mean, this is Dark Ages stuff, really. <laughs> and, you know, so Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and all of those people were just getting started. And there was some interest in Buddhism, although certainly I did, wasn't very aware of it. Um, and then, you know, I wasn't at all part of the Buddhist scene for a long time. And then, uh, and during that time, during the hippie era, when everybody was going off to Asia and practicing is when... Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Stephen Levine were all beginning to explore um, Buddhist practice. And I was reminding Noah at dinner that my first exposure to Buddhist practice here in Santa Cruz was in 1979, and I was a therapist at Family Service Association, and we were invited to attend a workshop on conscious dying. And it was held at Loudon Nelson Center, and Stephen Levine was teaching it. And I thought, oh, good. I was about to leave my first marriage, and so I had some dying going on. And um, I thought maybe it would come in handy, and I have to say it really did. 
And I went, and I remember walking into the room, and the chairs were, you know, little old folding chairs were set up in a circle. And I remember, here was this man who was sitting there with so much presence, just paying attention. He was just paying attention. That's all he was doing, was being mindful, I guess, of people who were coming and going, and as the group was gathering. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. He's got something. I don't know what it is he's got but I'm interested. And it was actually another five years before I got to Buddhist practice, but um, or four, I'm not sure exactly how many. Um, but that was my first exposure, was actually with his dad. <laughs> so, um, um, and then, you know, out of, and during that time, Stephen had a small group here in town and people attended. Is any, anybody here who was part of that group? Any of the older people? No? No. We'll have to wait for our 20th anniversary celebration to get some people. And then after I began practice in the early 80s, I hooked up with a group that was meeting in a living room. Um, we didn't have a bell. We had a pot lid and a wooden spoon. <laughs> That's what took care of our bell ringing needs. And that was in the mid-80s. And then um, in 1989, I began teaching. And in 1990, we think, was the retreat that Noah came to as his life was changing. So maybe you can say some about that. Sure. Um, And part of where we'd like to take this conversation uh, on some level is about uh, Buddhism in America, not only sort of where we've come from, but also possibly uh, this uh, unknowable question about where are we going to? What is, because uh, we're, we're creating it as we go here, what is American Buddhism going to be as we continue generation after generation to practice meditation and incorporate this stuff? Um, so yeah, 20 years ago, I found myself at that retreat. A, a couple years before that, I found myself uh, in jail in juvenile hall for the umpteenth time. And uh, also my first meditation teacher was my father. And uh, he said, well, why don't you try meditation? Because whatever you've been doing clearly isn't working. Um, there you are locked up again. And uh, so I started meditating. In my first couple of years, of, I was definitely a closet Buddhist uh, meditator, and I was actually quite embarrassed that my life had become so bad that I had to stoop so low to meditate. <laughs> um, I wasn't so embarrassed about being a drug addict or a criminal or uh, any of those things, but the fact that I was meditating was very shameful in my circle. And... Um, And then life got so bad that I decided I'd sign up for a meditation retreat. Really got clear to me that uh, I got off of the drugs and off of the, uh, away from the crime for the most part. And it became so clear that it wasn't the drugs or the crime that was the problem, that it was my head in somehow that was the problem, that it was really internal. The only thing that had ever given me any solace, the only place that I really felt like I had any hope was in meditation. 
and uh, going to that retreat with Jack Cornfield, and I had met Jack before as a friend of my father and meeting Mary there. Uh, you know, it was a huge shift for me. Not only did it in some ways uh, begin to solidify the path that I was seeking was a meditative path, but also uh, the importance of community. Because I already knew, I was already meditating by myself in my closet. <laughs> right. Sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. But I didn't quite understand how important it was to have support. Until I went to that retreat, until I met some teachers. I'd read the, some books and sort of knew how to pay attention to my breath, sort of, initial meditation. But to come into community and um, to feel so separate and so different, and, you know, probably being the youngest person at the time, I was 19 years old, and not a lot of 19-year-olds on that retreat as far as I recall. But but to be warmly welcomed by a teacher, to be treated uh, with some some compassion and encouraged, yeah, you can can do this. Whatever the circumstances of your life, uh, you can wake up. Freedom from suffering is an option. It's amazing to hear that and to know that and And I began after that to attend uh, this Thursday night meditation group pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. I uh, come early and help set up sometimes. Mary was uh, very friendly and very uh, open and sort of, I think, I feel like, I don't know if she would feel the same way, but I feel like she sort of took me under her wing a little bit and uh, and, uh, really gave me some core guidance. You know, as as you're talking, um, I'm thinking a little bit about uh, one of the things I did this in this last couple of weeks was I taught at a Quaker community on the East Coast. And so this is one of the interesting things that's happening in the Buddhist world is the place where Buddhism is also weaving through some of our Western practices as well. And one of the things that is being talked about a lot in the Quaker world is the importance of practice, which is really what you're talking about. And and that that um, that the people who are talking about practice are not so interested in Quakerism as a belief system or a religion, but really as something that you do. And in the Buddhist teaching, um, you know that important place that has been resonating me as I've been listen- in me as I've been listening to Noah is you know there's the whole piece about the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering and then there's this wonderful third noble truth that says and it can stop you can come to an end of suffering and then our friend Sylvia Burstein likes to say there's a third and a half noble truth which is that if you don't come to a complete end of suffering at least you can suffer less <laughs> and, and I really think that that's one of the things that both Noah and I in our own ways have found out have found to be true and that that's some of what was really unpacking itself for you as you moved into practice was, oh, there's a way to live my life so that I don't suffer so much. And that other groups are beginning to really want to work with practice for that same reason, because that's what really brings you to an ending of suffering. 
So I don't know how much more to say about the sort of history other than uh, really it's a pleasure to be here and sort of, uh, we were talking earlier about Spirit Rock, which uh, uh, is the center that both of us uh, are involved with and, and Mary more so than I, but just I was, I was expressing to Mary how I felt like Spirit Rock was sort of my one of my spiritual homes and uh, also feel like... Uh, even though this is a new center, but that this community, even though uh, a lot of new faces since 20 years ago when I started sitting here, or even 10 years ago when I stopped sitting here, uh, a lot of new faces, but still just feeling like, oh, this is a a spiritual home. And I guess that that's part of what I uh, kind of feel like this is going, is the importance of having a Mm. home, a, a community, that you connect with, that you can come back to, that can support us. And of course, with community and with uh, you know, this sort of conversation about Buddhism and Sangha, community being such a core part of Buddhism, it's not all as uh, ideal as we'd like, it to, <laughs> like to think it is. Uh, personally, I don't even think that the Buddha meant for it to be uh, this totally easy uh, place where everyone gets along all of the time. Uh, I think that there's such an important part in community around conflict and around disagreeing and around uh, being real. One of the things that I, not to go down this road too much, but one of the things that I really can't stand about Buddhist community is when everybody has on their fake spiritual mask. <laughs> and everybody's showing up and they're, you know, walking slowly and they're, you know, talking slowly and they're, uh, you know, being so gentle and so generous. And you know that it's bullshit. <laughs> you know that's not how they really live their life. Maybe it's not. Some, I mean, hopefully, some people really live their life like that. I mean, you see someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, and you know, oh, you know, he really lives like that. He really is slow all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. Right? Uh, and I think probably most of us aren't. And the importance of being real and... <coughs> And how much I appreciate a place, a community to come to, to be real. To be real in uh, the joy of life and the sorrow of life. And my, and my deep hope that, uh, that this community and that all Buddhist community uh, becomes a place where we uh, are real and become more and more real and have more and more opportunity to not just sit silently in meditation, however deeply important that is, but also to have the real conversations and, uh, and to push each other's buttons. Right? That's part of the importance of community too, is an opportunity. Some people in my community in Los Angeles were recently saying uh, I'm go- that they were going to make t-shirts that say, I'm your practice. <laughs> Can we have some? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all want. And really, just how important that piece is around uh, if somebody's annoying you, that's your practice. And it's an opportunity. I think the Tibetans have a, a practice around pretending that everyone in the room is enlightened except for you. 
And what a great practice that is, because that way you think, oh, they're all Buddhas. So even though that's the farting Buddha, and that's the, you know, whatever, breathing too loud Buddha, and that's the, uh, you know, cell phone ringing Buddha, whatever. But all of them are giving you an opportunity to be more compassionate, to be more accepting, to be more forgiving. You know, one of the things that's said about um, Buddhism and coming into the West and currently is that what one of the things that it may be is that this will be the Buddhism of householders, of people with everyday lives. <coughs> and of course, one of the things about Thich Nhat Hanh is that he's, he's pretty protected, right? He can move pretty slowly because <coughs> he doesn't have car payments <laughs> and other things. <coughs> I'm going to lose my voice in a minute. Keep talking. <laughs> anyway, you're it. That's really what I want to yeah. say, is that you, we are the cutting edge of Buddhism coming to the West right now, here. <coughs> now I am going to let you talk. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, one is, I think it's very interesting to get a sense of who's in the room and sort of how long you've been uh, involved in <coughs> meditation. And when I say meditation, uh, it doesn't have to be Vipassana meditation. Uh, it doesn't have to be Buddhist meditation, but uh, really I'm quite interested in your spiritual practice and how long you've been on your spiritual path that in some way or another has led you to this Buddhist meditation group tonight. So, uh, how many people are... Uh, brand new within your first month of meditation practice. Okay. Uh, half a year, like six months, been meditating, kind of on a practicing, just coming to it. Okay. And between six months and a year? Good experience crowd. And uh, one to five years. And uh, five to ten years. Ten to twenty years of practice. And over twenty years been at it. The elders. Yes. <laughs> I just ask because I think that it's... Did anybody not participate? (laughs) You didn't fit in there? Yeah. Was there a question, or you were just going to say for you how long it was? I was just going to make a comment on... I've meditated about 15, 16 years or so, but the first connection I ever had with Buddhism was in 1970 at the first workshop I ever took anything in my life with Gary Schneider and Alan Watts. Huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It was the first, time, the first time I'd ever heard of it. And there was a representative there from the Dalai Lama also. And the first time I ever heard the word Buddhism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Old school. Hmm. <laughs> 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 Who knows where this is going to go? I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of uh, desires. 
for Buddhism because I, I love it very much. Uh, it's uh, in so many ways saved my life and been such a core important uh, thing in my life. Uh, and there's a lot about Buddhism that I don't like. I don't love all of it. Um, I'm not a very big fan of religion. I really appreciate centers like this that are meditation centers, that are Buddhist meditation centers, but that there's not a lot of, uh, I think, there's not a lot of religiosity around it. I was thinking about how the first time I went to Thailand and I went to Buddhist monasteries, uh, and it was much more important to the people uh, that were showing me the monastery that I don't point my feet at the Buddha image. That actually, that that was the thing that they thought was most important for me to know. Do not point your feet at the teacher or the Buddha image. They weren't so concerned with me learning meditation, with me learning kindness or compassion or anything that the Buddha actually taught. But they were really concerned with the cultural norms that had become Buddhism. What had become how to appropriately act as a Buddhist, which had nothing to do with the liberating teachings of the Buddha. So uh, my hope that is, uh, and I think that it's what's happening, is that in the West we'll be much more concerned with the meditative liberation that's possible, the happiness, the freedom, the healing, the awakening, whatever we want to call it, than we will with the sort of religious if you bow correctly or if you sit correctly or if you are wearing the right length skirt or whatever it is, uh, that Buddhism will be much more practical, much more applicable. I once heard that uh, less than 10% of Buddhists meditate on a regular basis. That Buddhism has become in such a state of kind of degradation, such a religion, where it's so much more about bowing and making merit and walking circles around uh, statues than it is about actually training the mind or the heart uh, or learning to meet our pain with compassion or learning to meet pleasure with non-attachment. It's really, uh, to me, what feels like uh, the Buddha's core intention was, which was to empower us, to wake us up, to give us some practical tools So my hope, and I think actually what will happen and is happening, is that Buddhism will continue to be practical and uh, strip away some of the dogma, strip away some of the uh, unnecessary religiousness and keep it core, practical, applicable, experience instructions. And I know that that's what happens here because it's what I experienced here. Yeah, so that's part of my thought for the... We have our bowing Where we're going, we have... Yeah. I sort of... I have an interesting relationship to bowing where I don't do it much anymore, mostly because I'm rebelling against it. But there's a part of me inside that wants to because I love the sort of reverence of bowing, but I don't like uh, the... um, mindlessness that I think goes into it a lot. That people just do it because they think that it's what they're supposed to do. And so I stopped bowing maybe about five years ago. 
for the most part, unless I'm with Amara, then I bow to him. But just about anybody else, I don't bow to. And I stopped it for the most part. I don't do it. But there is something internally where I kind of want to. Because there is something really beautiful about doing it. I think also when I started teaching more, I didn't want people bowing to me so much, so I stopped bowing to them. <laughs> See, but when I'm at Spirit Rock, uh-huh. I bow pretty regularly to the altar, not yeah. to the teachers. But I bow partly because nobody else bows, and You're holding I that. love to bow yeah. like you, yeah. and so I feel like I can hold that end of it so that the people who want to bow have the bow. permission, yeah. So just in case you were wondering, you're welcome to do either here. So, yeah, it's a wonderful practice. Should we take questions? Let's take questions. What's on your mind? It doesn't have to be anything to do with the history of this group or or Buddhism in America, but about meditation practice or anything, yeah. Just a question about something. A friend of mine went to a workshop about Yashantis up at Spirit Rock a couple weeks ago. And uh, he brought back a bunch of notes on it and stuff like that that he talked to his men's group. I mean, but one of the comments Adya had made is that if you've been meditating for 20 or 25 years or so and you haven't woken up yet, maybe you should sit down and just look at your practice and what you're doing and are you doing it right or where should you should be going or something like that. And I just wonder if you want to comment on that. We'll both comment on it. Um, You know, there's so many different ways to hold waking up. Our Zen friends like to say just to sit is to be enlightened. And I think there's something that's deeply true about that that understands that just knowing that we have to give our attention to our experience, to our minds. Noah said it so well, you know, that place where we're really paying attention to the mind, learning to be more compassionate with pain, and know that we need to be less clinging with things that are pleasurable. Just that is a huge piece of awakening. And um, it may be that Adyashanti understands awakening in such a way that it's something that happens and it should have happened if you've been meditating for 20 years. I don't know so much about that, you know. And I think Awakening, my own sense, I've always loved the title of, of Noah's dad's book, first book, which was A Gradual Awakening, and that you keep kind of waking up and waking up and waking up, and you go deeper and deeper or further and further up, depends on how you see things, as we practice more. So I don't have a time limit on it. Um, they said it wasn't attacking anybody's practice or anything, but you should look at it and what's happening to you should always look at it. If you haven't waked up in a week, you should look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm also not so familiar with his mm. views or uh, exactly what his definition of if you haven't woken up yet, mm. kind of what that means to him. But I think that this is a very uh, important comment also about the importance of really investigating our practice. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? Uh, are we actually following a mm-hmm. practice that is liberating? Are we kind of applying the techniques correctly? Have we gotten into some ruts with our practice? Did we hear 20 years ago that meditation was paying attention to your breath? And that's all we've been doing for the last 20 years, and we've never gone beyond breath awareness. Uh, Mary and I at dinner tonight were talking about 
how important the second foundation of mindfulness is, this uh, going beyond the breath and uh, opening to the whole body and the feeling tones. Vedana, the, the tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone of each experience. Mm-hmm. And if we're practicing mindfulness, very important, am I in each meditation investigating my relationship to pleasure, my relationship to pain, my relationship to the neutral moment? Uh, I think uh, that unfortunately a lot of people that are doing Vipassana for maybe a really long time are skipping that core step. A lot of people are still just paying attention to the breath. That's all they do. They like that. (laughs) They stay there. So uh, that kind of comment, if you're, you know, I I believe there is a... uh, right way to do Vipassana. (laughs) And a wrong way, on some level. And uh, there's four foundations. There's over 16 levels of investigation that we should be doing if we want to be following the Buddha's advice. If we want to be kind of uh, applying this technique that the Buddha says will definitely wake you up. Only taking bits and pieces of it For instance, in the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, the Buddha asks us to do the corpse reflections. In the first foundation, after paying attention to the breath, he says, now also go into visualizing a corpse and acknowledging just as this body is dead and decaying and rotting and all of these different stages of decay, my body also has the same nature of of decay. I was practicing, and this is no uh, reflection on Mary at all, but for many, many years I was practicing Vipassana before I heard that I was supposed to also be reflecting on death as part of my Vipassana practice. So I think that this is an important uh, comment that we need to really be thorough if we want to have the kind of awakening that the Buddha had. He was very specific about how to wake up. All of these different things to investigate. Are we investigating all of them, or are we sort of doing the American pick and choose? Right? I'll do breath awareness because I like that. I'll do yoga. That feels good. Gets me in shape. I'll do, uh, uh, I'll do loving kindness. Right? But I'm never going to do forgiveness. Right? <laughs> I'll do compassion, but I'm never going to do uh, whatever. You know, something else. So, so let me add yeah, in please. one piece because there's one one teaching that I got at one point from the from the Dalai Lama actually that has been really helpful, and he suggests that you evaluate your spiritual practice in ten year increments, which is a great teaching because there's it is important as Noah says to sort of sit down and look you know how's my practice going, and but sometimes if you look just to last week you know your practice is in the pits. You haven't sat, you've been mean, you kicked the dog, you've done a few things that weren't well behaved, and it doesn't look like you're getting anywhere. But sometimes when we look back 10 years or 5 years even, we go, oh look, it is better. I have made some changes. Things are moving. I'm a little kinder. I'm a little easier on myself. I'm a little friendlier to other people. I do sit more often. I've done a number of retreats. Whatever it is that you might say as well as then looking at the places where, oh, I could, I could sharpen up here or there, um, which is always 
a helpful thing to do. New mm-hmm. Year's, if no other time. And I'd like to even contradict myself and, and uh, remind us all that uh, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. And he didn't have anybody giving him all of the lists that I'm talking about. He just sat down and paid a lot of attention and investigated deeply and I think really uh, questioned all of his uh, ideas and all of his experiences. And I, I don't know if this is a quote from the Buddha or it's more of a kind of Buddha Dasa quote. But at some point I heard uh, that it was said that all of the Dharma, all of the truth, everything will be revealed if we pay attention to the body. Is that a Buddha quote or Buddha Dasa? Mm-hmm. So perhaps the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, just it's all in here. But that's if part we of what makes him the Buddha. Right. You see, is he paid enough attention yeah. to come up with all of those lists? I mean, imagine paying that much attention. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm glad he did it. So we don't <laughs> <have that> <laughs> <laughs> well, it got written down. Ananda remembered it, and then it got written down later. So... Maybe another question. Yeah. This question is really for Noah. Um, so I'm curious <laughs> your experience when you first got into the lifestyle that you led kind of up until the time that you really came on a spiritual path. I look back on my 20s um, and I kind of, you know, I thought it was normal then, but looking back on it, you know, it was some, you know, probably not some wise choices. But as I've gotten more on a spiritual path, certain friendships that I had from those mm. years, it, it really comes to a head mm-hmm. when people aren't necessarily supportive of kind of the path that you've come on mm-hmm. and what your experience was maybe in either letting those friendships go or um, just kind of, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. For the most part, uh, I think that I was willing to let go of all of my crew. For the most part, I was desperate enough. And I, I found something here, we'll say, for lack of a, a better word. I found something here that I knew, uh, my, a wisdom here that I knew my friends didn't have. And I knew that there was a group of people here that had it, or at least wanted to have this sort of wisdom and compassion that my friends <laughs> weren't so interested in. They had a different kind of wisdom. <laughs> so I felt like I was willing, but I didn't shut the door on my friends or my past. Uh, I became the uh, you know meditating punk rocker. At some point, there was a period where I was separate from it a bit, and I kind of went and, and went and did some retreats, and you know, Thursday nights was at the Vipassana group. And, but at some point, I kind of reconnected, maybe a bit intentionally, and not totally intentionally. And what happened eventually was that many of my friends got interested, saw the genuine changes that began to take place in my life and said, I'm, I'd like to suffer less too. Right? You're not such a jerk anymore. What happened? <laughs> that kind of, you know, we inspire people. We encourage people when they see the changes that take place in us. Um, so there, kind of partially that happened. And then partially, I kind of my life changed, and when I got off of drugs, I didn't hang out with people that did drugs so much. And, um, 
But now, often, I'll run into people like uh, my friend Robbins here that I've known for 30 years, you know, from back then, what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, I'll see people that, who know, who knew it, but wow, we're both in a Buddhist meditation group, you know, 30 years later. Uh, that happens some too. It's the one of the things uh, what I was talking about earlier about sangha. It's a rare path, the spiritual path, especially if you come from the punk rock scene or the. But no matter where you come from in this world, it's a rare path. The Buddha said so. Yeah, upstream. And so it's so important to have support from people who are also interested in that rare and precious against the stream. Uh, and most likely, it's not going to be your homies that you grew up with. Most likely, you're going to... My father used to say uh, in workshops, I'd hear him say a lot, uh, most of us have to leave home, including our kind of friendships, in order to find our true families. And that that's what the Sangha can become, has the potential of becoming as a place uh, where we support each other. There's a whole bunch of misfits who are doing something incredibly unpopular. Sitting still? <laughs> Practicing generosity in this selfish, greed-based world? Practicing forgiveness in this world that insists that we hold on to resentment and righteous anger, uh, practicing compassion in this body that insists we meet pain with aversion. Right? Not only is uh, our spiritual practice an internal form of rebellion, right? we're rebelling against our survival instincts on so many levels, and, and the world doesn't support it. So uh, to find a whole bunch of people that are as weird as us, <laughs> who also have enough, uh, what I might call the grace of dissatisfaction, really the blessing of having suffered enough to say, uh, I don't want to suffer like that anymore. I want to be awake. I want to find a, a new way to live in this body and in this world. Really important to have the, the community to support us. Most likely, it's not going to be the people that we were chummy with when we came to practice, when we came to. Most likely. Is that your experience too? What was it like for you? You were a therapist and your friends were all meditators, right? No. <laughs> no, I think, I think, it, I mean, I think that happens as our practice deepens, as we enter. I often think of it as being in the Dharma world, you know, and that sometimes when I drop out of the Dharma world for one reason or another to usually visiting somebody, it's a little shocking, actually. Um, and that there have been people that I've moved away from. and But then some, I'm actually at a very interesting point in my life where I'm about to go to my <coughs> 50th high school reunion, <laughs> and which is a little scary to think about. So I'm reconnecting with people that I haven't seen for 50 years. Mm. And that's actually being fascinating to find that some of them are very different from me, and some of them have come along on very similar paths. Mm. So 
I think we should maybe stop for a minute and have announcements. And do, yeah. would you lead a closing metta yeah. in a minute? And then, so we'll stop. I'm going to make a couple of announcements. We'll have a closing loving kindness practice. Then we'll have tea and cookies and a chance to hang out more and visit more and ask more questions. Does that seem like a plan? Yeah? Because I know some people are hoping to be able to leave. So there's just a few things. One of them is tomorrow night. Um, We've been having a series here called The Buddhist Teachers of Santa Cruz. And um, so tomorrow night, John Landoff from Land of Medicine Buddha and Vajrapani will be here. He's a wonderful Tibetan teacher and scholar, a Western Tibetan practitioner, um, and a real gem in his own quiet and very clear way. That's at 7 o'clock here. He'll talk some. He'll lead us into some guided practice. There'll be a chance to ask questions. I'll be here to moderate and to, you know, hold up the Vipassana side of things if that needs to be done at all. Um, And I hope that a number of you will come. It's been actually a great series and very interesting. Um, Also, just to underline that we now have a regular Wednesday evening beginners group or or meditation that's suitable for beginners. It's sort of like an ongoing beginners class. This month, Jill and Bruce Hyman are teaching it. Just Jill. Just Jill. Oh, all right, no Bruce, just Jill, and uh, focusing primarily on the practice of, on loving kindness practice, which we're about to do in a minute. That's Wednesdays at six thirty, and then um, just a coming ahead at the end of the month, Marcy is doing a day of vipassana in Qigong. This is Marcy over here, our Qigong teacher, on March twenty ninth. Yeah, and our flyers are out for our residential retreat over Memorial Day weekend. It's called the Jewel of Awakening. And I will be teaching it along with Bob Stahl and Carla Brennan. Um, Marcy will be along as our Qigong teacher. And Jason is going to come and be there as our teacher trainee. So take a flyer. Please come if you can. There is some scholarship available. Um, And um, we'd love to see a full retreat with Vipassana Santa Cruz people. (coughs) Any announcements I've forgotten? Just to remind people that the teacher Donna baskets are by the door for that practice of generosity. Teacher and Sangha Donna. I might also just announce that um, if you're interested in my teaching schedule, it's all posted on uh, my website, dharmapunks.com or againstthestream.org. Both of them will lead you to my teaching schedule and several retreats coming up. Um, we have a five-day silent retreat at Spirit Rock in June uh, that I'll be leading with a couple other teachers. And registration is open for it, and it will fill up. If you're interested in coming and sitting for a few days, uh, register early if you plan to come to that retreat so that you have the opportunity to come. Um, and if you're in Los Angeles, come visit me. I have a, a couple of different places that I teach, both in Hollywood and Santa Monica. That's where I live now. So if you're in the neighborhood in L.A., uh, check out our schedule and come sit with me or some of the other teachers down there. So we just usually really short. Merit and metta. Metta and merit. Just relaxing into your natural posture. Don't put your mask on.
Just be your old, messed up, perfectly imperfect self. And soften your heart with the intention of being kind, with the intention of being friendly and loving. Offering yourself a moment of loving kindness. Sometimes we simply say to ourselves, may I be happy. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering, confusion. And then expanding this, understanding that just as each one of us has our own desire for well-being, our wish for freedom, it's the same with everyone else, everywhere our friends and family, our enemies, and all of the unknown beings in this world all wish to be happy. So, inclining your heart towards kindness and compassion and love outward in all directions, may all beings in existence be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering. And may any goodness, any merit that may arise from our gathering be shared, offered out in all directions to all beings in existence. May our practices and our life's energy bring about a positive change to this world. Thank you. thank you. And thank you all for coming, and please enjoy oh. the tea and the cookies. And we did bring some copies of my books. If you're interested, <coughs> they're over there, and uh, my mother will be working the merch table. <laughs> you want a book? They're over there, in this room here. We can talk about what we want to do with the donut. It's fine, I didn't... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.